want to acknowledge the wisdom, knowledge, and expertise of the Gadigal ancestors in their custodianship of the lands and soil that I now call home. I acknowledge and recognize their ancestors whose wisdom have cared for this land for millennia. I now recognize also and acknowledge my responsibility, the responsibility I have in stewarding and caring for these lands. This responsibility now rests on my shoulders. My responsibility is to care for the land and soil upon which I now live so that our children's children can celebrate and enjoy the fruits of this soil so that they too can live healthy, prosperous and happy lives on the land and soil of the Gadigal people. And let us also acknowledge and undertake together to take care of our Mother Earth so that our future generations are not robbed nor deprived of their rightful inheritance that is our responsibility to pass on to them so that they too can enjoy the same entitlements, the same benefits, and all the other entitlements that we have enjoyed on these lands and upon these soils that we now call our home. Thank you. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 99. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On this episode, we're talking about COP26 and climate justice with Pastor Ray Minicon, Jared McKenna, and Dr. Byron Smith. Pastor Ray Minicon is an Australian Indigenous leader and a descendant of the Cubby Cubby Nation, the Gurangarang Nation of Southeast Queensland, and also the South Sea Islander people. He holds many roles, including as an honorary Indigenous minister for Scarred Tree Indigenous Ministries at St. John's Anglican Church in Glebe. Jared McKenna is the co-host of the Inverse podcast. He's also the founder of the First Home Project for Refugees and a leader of faith-based civil disobedience movements in Australia. He's also a non-violent social change educator in Australia and internationally. Dr. Byron Smith is an ecological ethicist and Christian minister. His time is split between pastoral ministry in the Anglican Church in Sydney and a speaking writing ministry, helping churches join the dots between ecological justice and faith. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn and myself, Stephanie Kate Judd. This was a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and I think it was particularly helpful for, for me in that it wasn't just theology, but it was really practical. How did you find the conversation, John? I, I love this conversation. I thought each of our guests were absolutely fabulous. I really appreciated the theological insights as well as a lot of the political and practical challenges that, that we heard in this episode from, from each of our guests. I love the wisdom from, from Pastor Ray and especially his experience. He was actually there at COP26. And just to, to hear his report, uh, it's a sad one. It's a, it's a bleak one. But to hear his report, Report and to, to reckon with that, I thought was just a really valuable thing for us to hear and uh, appreciated the wisdom from Byron and, and Jared as well. All around, it was just a really, really great conversation. And I hope that it is impactful for our listeners and thinking about, you know, what does it look like for, for each of us? Uh, as Dr. Byron said, there's a U-shaped contribution that we all can make. And, and Jared talked about this idea that hope is what we do with our bodies specifically, that there's this embodied response that we can make with our bodies as a political, political action. And I just really loved that challenge. I thought it was a powerful word from everyone. Just really appreciated being able to chat with them on this episode. Yeah, I think I found um, um, the word that Jared brought about what it means to bear witness with a confrontational lament, to tell the, 
the resurrection truth with our bodies. I think that that was a really impactful um, word from Jared. And I know I have personally benefited from Jared's um, wisdom in, in this space particularly, but it was great to hear from Pastor Ray as well, um, bringing uh, a First Nations uh, perspective to this conversation, which I think is really essential. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think will be really helpful for us to kind of establish here in this introduction before the episode actually properly begins is uh, the Australian nature of this conversation, because I'm the lone American in this conversation, and you all are, are coming from a, a very particular situation and setting as you talk about this issue of climate justice. I wonder if you could set up some of that for our listeners. Yeah, for sure. Um, like in Australia, like in a lot of other colonised nations, um, the First Nations of Australia have borne the brunt of a lot of climate injustice, the, the impact of climate injustice. So you, in this conversation, you will hear um, Pastor Ray make reference to a lot of the intergenerational disadvantage that his people have borne. So he makes reference to a few things that for non-Australians, um, they may not recognise. That's things like he makes reference to uh, the stolen generations. That was a, uh, a policy of the federal government um, in the early 20th century, which was basically um, where um, the, the government stole or, or took Indigenous children from their families and took them into institutional settings. So that that's obviously uh, wrought tremendous amounts of trauma, intergenerational trauma. So that's, he makes reference to that. And so that's what he's talking about. He also talks about sorry business in his own family, which is what he's, he's currently going through, sorry business in his family. That's the process of grieving um, for Indigenous peoples when there's been a death. And um, in Australia, um, like in other, in other countries, a lot of um, Indigenous people experience much lower life expectancies, and that's another grief that they have to bear. And so the impact of climate injustice isn't just felt for them on a a political level is a personal thing for them. And so that's what comes out in a lot of um, Pastor Ray's testimony that you'll hear today. And with that, here's our conversation with Pastor Ray Minicon, Jared McKenna and Dr. Byron Smith. Well, Byron... Jared and Uncle Ray, it's so great to have you on the pod. Great to be here. This is fun. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, John and uh, Stephanie, for the invitation to come here to speak with you guys today. It's a real pleasure and an honour and a privilege, and I'm very humbled by the uh, conversation that we're having around these very, very huge big issues that are confronting all of humanity. So in this conversation, we're going to be talking about climate change and obviously the immediate political catalyst for this is COP26, which is the name for the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, which was held in Glasgow on the 31st of October to 13th of November this year. One of our guests today, Pastor Ray Minicon, attended the conference and we're going to be asking him to share some of his reflections on that in a moment. But before we dive into some more theological reflections on that, I thought it might be helpful to take a step back and get a sense of the landscape we're going to be discussing to give a few handholds for the conversation. So, Byron, you've been a tremendous help for me personally in understanding how to think well about climate change as a human and as a Christian. Um, you've got a formidable grasp of the politics, the history and, you know, the theology and the science of climate change. I, I wondered if you, you could kick us off with a bit of a 101 on what COP26 was and why it needed to happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, COP26, as you said, it's the 26th conference of the parties, and the parties mean the 190-odd signatories of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, signed back 30-odd uh, years ago, um, where all the nations of the world got together and said, hey, there's a bit of a problem here. We probably should do something about it. Um, and so why did COP26 need to happen? Because COPs 1 through to 25 didn't work, is the short answer. Uh, so progress has been made over those three, de three decades, but staggeringly little for three decades worth of work on what is actually one of the globe's foremost uh, challenges and crises. 
for those who might still be feeling a bit fuzzy about just what climate change or climate disruption or global warming is, um, you really just need to know the answers to four pretty simple questions to get a bit of a handle on it. Um, they're all very straightforward. And the good news is they've all got the same answer. The four questions are, is it happening? Is it us? Is it bad? And can we do anything? And the answer to each of those is yes. So is it happening? Yes, multiple independent lines of evidence across hundreds of data sets point to the Earth system rapidly gaining heat energy. Whether you look at atmospheric temperature records, ocean temperature records, declining Arctic sea ice, declining glacier mass, declining ice sheet mass, rising sea levels, declining snow cover, increased permafrost thaw, the polewood and upward movement of species, the timing of seasonal events, all point towards this conclusion. The planet is gaining heat more rapidly right now than at any time in the history of human civilization. And we're rapidly leaving the relatively stable climate of the last 10,000 years or so during which uh, most agriculture developed. So is it happening? Yes, there's no question at all about that. Is it us? Yes, there are multiple telltale fingerprints in the observed changes that uh, point to uh, human actions being the primary drivers of these changes that we're seeing, particularly human emissions of greenhouse gases. So numerous studies that have attempted to quantify the human contribution have found that we're responsible for approximately 100% of the recently observed warming, perhaps even a little bit more, because uh, left to itself, the Earth would likely be in a slight cooling trend at the moment. And that's the explicit or implicit position of roughly 99% of peer-reviewed papers over the last 20 years, and uh, more than 97% of the top experts and uh, of all the 190-odd scientific bodies of national or international standing that have considered the evidence and uh, worked out a position on this, uh, every single one of them agree that humanity is the primary driver of these changes. Now, consensus doesn't necessarily make good science, but good science generally leads to consensus when there's a consensus of data. And there's no other account that can really explain all the data that we have here. Um, so is it happening? Yes. Is it us? Yes. And there really is very little scientific question about either of those. Is it bad? Yes. Now, this gets very complicated, but climate impacts are already harming people and ecosystems in myriad ways. I mentioned some of them already. Worse heat waves, droughts, storms, rising oceans, declining crop yields, ecosystems being stressed beyond their ability to cope, uh, human societies stressed towards the limits of their ability to cope too. So we've only seen the tip of the iceberg when it comes to impacts. They're already bad, and the further and faster that we warm, the more we disrupt the global climate, the worse they're going to get. Uh, these are really quite uh, disturbing already, what we're seeing around the world. There's, there's pretty much not an ecosystem anywhere that's not showing signs of change. Uh, and the projections are really quite dire, depending how far into the future you get and um, how much worse we choose to make this. Because the fourth question is, can we do anything? And here, fortunately, the answer is also yes. The less carbon dioxide in particular uh, that we collectively emit, the slower and smaller these changes are going to be. And um, now, even with ambitious, aggressive action, we're still going to face unprecedented challenges, irretrievable losses. But Without that ambitious, aggressive action, we could well, uh, in all seriousness, face the end of industrial global civilization in anything like its present form, uh, along with the loss of the majority of extant species and ecosystems. So the actions that we collectively take today and in the years to come are going to shape the relative habitability of the planet for complex life for millennia to come. Now, many of the changes that we need to make also have all kinds of co-benefits, cleaner air, cleaner water, more thriving ecosystems, more interesting and more rewarding work, greater social cohesion, more steps towards justice and more. And yet it remains the fact that, uh, yes, we can make a difference here. And uh, so that is really our challenge. Is it happening? Yes. Is it us? Yes. Is it bad? Yes. Can we do anything? Yes. Now, did COP26 achieve anything? Yes, but not nearly as much as it ought to have. Again, that's the, the, the broad summary. You can get right into endless details of it. Um, but that's, that's uh, I guess, the context you might need to be caught up on if you haven't been following this. Pastor Ray, I, I loved um, the, the diary that you kept um, whilst you were in Glasgow. And I just wondered if you could share um, broadly what, what, was it, what was your experience of COP26 like? Broadly. That's a good, good way of putting it, actually. I guess for me, COP26, for Indigenous peoples anyways, was, an, was another disaster for us. We can't see any uh, 
clarity in terms of uh, what or how the nations of the world are going to look after country. Let me give you the broader perspective. You know, here in in, in our country anyways, we've looked after country for 60,000 years, and yet in, two, in the last 200 years, we've seen it, it being destroyed continuously. And uh, not just here in this country here, but right across in other uh, colonised countries. We've got to understand the colonisation process too, because that's really important in terms of this. One of the things that is quite obvious, if you look at the way, who's making these decisions, either at the UN level or at other levels, it's usually the colonised countries. We don't have a seat at the table, and yet it's our countries that are being raped and pillaged and destroyed. But we don't have a seat at the table. Our voices are silenced by these other nations who, are, who are, have invaded us. And so it becomes a little bit of a challenge for us to, to see this, to see the hypocrisy of it all, that the people who are destroying the planet are the ones who are saying, we've got the solutions to the planet. And so there's a deceitfulness there. And uh, we feel like we're being deceived and pull, have the wool pulled over our eyes so many times by all this wonderful, stupid language that they use, all this academic language, when it's quite obvious that it's not working. And uh, that, that's why I don't feel hopeful about these kinds of conversations. And there was an incident at COP26 right at the end on the Saturday when all the uh, parties were gathered around to make their final decision. And uh, 15 minutes before that final decision, two countries came up and were lobbying the president. And those two countries were China and India. And they wanted the wording changed in the agreements that had already been negotiated right throughout the whole COP. And they just wanted the word phasing out to phasing down. Just two words. And that changed for me or showed me very quite, quite clearly that uh, coal mining was going to continue, uh, fossil fuel industry was going to continue, all of these things were going to continue because there wasn't a phasing out period or a schedule, there was now a phasing down of that. And uh, on the Sunday morning, I turned on the TV, I think it was Sky News, and here is the Queensland Environmental Minister clapping his hand and saying, now we can, we can open more coal mines because of those two words. And so when you, you know, as an Indigenous person, when you see these nations coming to this thing here and making these kind of deals, they're not listening to us. We who looked after the country for thousands and thousands of years, we who are suffering from the incredible onslaughts of this crisis that we're in, and we who don't have a voice to even try to say stop, what can we do? Uh, for me, the, the, the most difficult thing when I went uh, into the COP, uh, in, in, into the stadium, was to see our own government being supported by the fossil fuel industry as well as the mining industries and all the industries that are destroying the planet. They're the ones who have propped, propped up the Australian government's voice to the world and saying, this is our solution to climate crisis. And it's the very industries that are destroying it. And for me, they, you know, Twiggy Forest is wandering around to all these other countries looking for other countries to, to rape, pillage and, and destroy. And I, I, I'm there just saying, how can this deceitfulness continue? I mean, they were using this particular crisis as a trade show. So the deceitfulness of the Australian community is, is profound. But do we care? That's the other question. Do we really care? And so my, I have to, you know, try to contain, contain my rage. I don't want to drive a heart failure or anything of that nature, my blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. 
we've got enough of these kind of uh, health challenges because of climate change going on in our communities. We now have clear scientific evidence that climate change and Indigenous health are connected. And so I can't come back here and tell you it's, it's, it's a nice rosy picture. I'd be lying to myself and lying to my people and um, lying to you. Uh, I think we're, we're facing a much more bigger crisis here now than we've ever faced. And those crises are one of uh, governance and how we ensure that <clears throat> we the people have a voice in this. Because the voice over there wasn't we the people of Australia, it was we the multinationals who were raping and destroying the, uh, the, the land. So I don't know how you change that voice or, or remove that voice or get the voices of the people involved clearly in this particular debate and put people in power that is going to actually do the things that we want them to do or require them to do or demand them to do. That's not going to happen. And the Christian voice is not there. It doesn't have a seat at the table or the religious voice of the faith sector. Uh, it's silenced by all of this. The indigenous voice is not there. We don't have a seat at the table. And all those other colonised countries too, like Africa and those other countries, actually, I think they're being exploited and manipulated more than, more than anything. It's, it's quite dire to see the exploitation of those countries and the resources that are being ripped out by these multinationals. Uh, one very clear, clear example of that is very close, one of our neighbours anyways here in this region is, is West Papua. And you can see, if you read that story of West Papua as to how it came to be what it is today, you can see the Rockefellers involved. You can see the USA involved, the FBI, Indonesia, all colluding to actually rip out, rip off, destroy that particular nation. And you can see genocide happening right before our eyes. But it's those rich people and those rich companies, the gold, the timber, the oil that are being rip, ripped out of these countries, even East Timor. I mean, goodness gracious me, Australia's having a big, difficult time trying to, I mean, they're having a difficult time with us. And so I, I don't have what you would call a hopeful view. I ha have often said uh, to people that I lost my hope over there. I don't have hope. It's not that I don't have faith, but my hope was dashed. It was battered. It was shattered by the things that I saw and the things that I experienced. And uh, so I had to find my hope in some other kind of process in some other kind of way. Thanks, Uncle Ray. It's a really heavy, heavy reality, the picture that you've painted for us. And I'm grateful for your witness uh, and for your testimony in that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm conscious that, Byron, I know that uh, your doctoral research was in this kind of question of how do you, how do you respond to that uh, theologically, emotionally? Um, and so I just wondered if, if you could share some of your reflections on, on that. It's, it's a picture that's bleak. And how are we to respond in that? And, and Jared, I'd, I'd love your reflections on that too. Yeah, and uh, I'd like to second everything Uncle Ray just said, uh, and in fact, make it slightly more bleak. Um, those two little words that he was talking about that I got added at the end there, the phasing down rather than the phasing out of coal, um, that was actually the very first time in 26 conferences of the party that there was any discussion of the primary solution to this issue which is fossil fuels. So none of the previous agreements have actually said we need to stop burning fossil fuels. This was the very first time that it was going to be included in the agreement uh, and it was going to say phase out coal, which is at least naming one of those three fossil fuels, the others being gas and oil. Um, and even that got watered down at the last minute, as uh, Uncle Ray said, by India and China with the collusion, let's uh, be clear here, of the Australian government and some others. Uh, because the Australian government was also awarded the uh, uh, an award of the worst country at COP26, the least um, constructive contributor. 
uh, and uh, uh, what Uncle Ray said about the um, uh, multinational um, extraction companies, the dirty energy industry uh, is true. If all the lobbyists from the dirty energy industry were a single national delegation at COP26, it would have been the largest by far. And so this is still um, at the international level, a discussion that's dominated by the great centers of wealth and power and uh, not by the needs uh, of the many, let alone the needs of the vulnerable. Um, and so in terms of how I respond to that emotionally, I, I share with Ray the, the deep anguish and pain, the anger and outrage. Um, and as someone who has benefited from so many of those systems that privilege the powerful and the male and uh, the white and the coloniser, uh, I also feel a sense of uh, shame um, and a, a resolution to uh, seek to try to do what I can to love my neighbour, and that's going to mean confronting many of those systems and uh, trying to dismantle them, um, build alternatives. So my PhD research was into our emotional responses to the realities of our climate uh, crisis. Um, looking at what we do with those senses of uh, anguish and, and fear and anxiety and uh, anger um, uh, and the way that those uncomfortable emotional reactions can tend towards us wanting to look away, right? Because one of the ways that we cope is by holding these realities at arm's length. None of us like to really face up to bad news. It's hard to do. It hurts us. <laughs> it, it takes mental and, and spiritual effort to face the truth about ourselves and the truth about our situation. None of us want to hear a bad diagnosis. Uh, and so we, we all engage in what's called identity protective cognition, is what psychologists call it, um, which is the tendency all of us have to interpret new disturbing information in ways that will reinforce our current sense of self and our current sense of identity. Um, and that can be as explicit as the outright denial that we see in certain segments of society and embraced, um, unfortunately, by certain segments of the, of the church. Um, but it can be more subtle forms, too. There are soft forms of denial that are, uh, are about um, deflecting, um, uh, uh, looking away, um, seeking someone else to push responsibility off onto, um, or placing our, uh, uh, you know, grasping onto delusional hopes. That there are actually no hope at all, uh, where we think that some you know tech billionaire is going to come along with a whiz bang silver bullet solution and uh, uh, hand us a get out of jail free card. Um, you know these are all ways of holding at arm's length the uncomfortable emotional realities of our planetary diagnosis. And so my PhD explored how then do we, drawing upon the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we face up to those uncomfortable realities? How do we integrate them into our sense of self and our sense of belonging? How do we step forward into responsibility, uh, into the kinds of action that will not only um, uh, be the best response to despair, but more importantly, be putting into action Jesus' twofold command that we be loving the creator and this beautiful creation with our whole hearts and that we be loving our neighbours uh, as ourselves, including our Indigenous neighbours, including the, the, the neighbours in poverty around the world who will face the first and worst impacts and are already feeling this, uh, including our neighbours in amongst uh, young people and generations yet to come uh, as this problem worsens, including neighbours uh, beyond the human, uh, all those with whom we share the community of life. Um, and so that was uh, the, the focus of my research. Um, and I, I think it's a, an under-acknowledged reality that, that a lot of what's going on, why we are not uh, at a cultural level really grappling with this is because the news really is dire and it's really hard for us to face bad news when that's going to mean re-examining some of the fundamental stories that we have collectively lived by for decades, the stories that have shaped our priorities, our cultural institutions, um, our, our values, our sense of success. Um, and so uh, some of those stories are there on display at COP26, um, which is that we give a great deal of prominence to money. 
and great collections of money in the forms of these multinational mining companies and extraction companies. Uh, and and that, that story that the, the great centers of money ought to be the ones making the most important decisions has another name, which is capitalism. And an alternative to it is uh, another thing that I think we probably should try sometime, which is called democracy. That's a foreign language, isn't it? You speak in English. That's Greek, isn't it? Democracy? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not English. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those many words that you were talking about, Uncle Ray, which is the, the lies that we tell ourselves. Hmm. Um, the, the, uh, of course, a democracy, I mean, if you do go back to the Greek, it's, it's that the people are making the decisions, the hmm. demos. Um, um, that's right. But actually, what you were experiencing, what you were witnessing at COP26 is that it's not, these decisions are not made by or for the inhabitants of the earth. They are being made by and for the powerful, the wealthy, uh, those who have been causing the problem and continue to profit from worsening it. And that's not democracy, that's plutocracy, the rule that's of right, wealth. Yeah. Mm, plutocracy. That is such a, a powerful word. Thank you for that, Byron. Jared, to you, similarly, how does your faith inform how you think about climate change at that emotional, theological, pastoral level? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I'm, I'm really struck by um, uh, both Byron and Uncle Ray's um, witness in this area. And to, to make clear what um, Uncle Ray was spelling out, that what happened at COP26 is um, it was supposed to be, you know, last 26 meetings supposed to be coming together for real action on climate. And instead it was turned into a den of carbon stock exchange. And and to be able to, to name it as such um, and give up all fo false hopes, I think is an act of discipleship. And for me, um, I can't make a sense of Christianity um, without understanding it as discipleship and I can't make sense of um, discipleship without understanding that um, any beliefs are a reflection um, and an outworking of real embodiment. I think ultimately hope, real hope is where we put our bodies and what we're doing as a body, as people embodying something differently. And um, as Byron's um, uh, work so uh, like exquisitely uh, puts and Byron runs workshops for people uh, via Zoom as well. Byron's not going to put himself out there like this, so let me do it for my brother. Um, if if you're part of a church community or a learning group who wants to actually explore this, um, Byron will take you through um, at like like in incredible uh, learning experiences doing just that. Um, one of the things I think we have to do is understand um, what what the church can offer the larger climate justice movement. And I think one of the things we can offer is confession um, that flows directly out of um, the good news of bodily resurrection. Now, now that might sound um, uh, uh, conservative to, to some, but there is a what Ched Myers calls a functional doceticism. Um, uh, doceticism being the uh, belief that it only seemed like Jesus came in the flesh, but there... Um, there is a functional doceticism where the church got into bed with empire and um, Christian hope got pushed out into the afterlife. And then you pair that with um, the imperial project that came stealing, killing and destroying that Uncle Ray has so clearly named that the doctrine of discovery is um, a clear outworking of uh, not Jesus's mission, but the one that he calls a thief. And if we're going to be really clear that um, our, our climate crisis is actually, it, it, it is the fruits of not being able to live within the right limits and relationship with all that is. And to name theologically that if, if idolatry is placing something as king over everything, um, doxology, like worship, right worship, is actually learning to worship with everything um, as kin, um, the, the one who demands that uh, we come into relationship with the places we are. So I think theologically, one of the things that um, is incredibly helpful, um, John, I've, I've just had um, a, a, a little one join us in the world, and we have another one on the way in five weeks. And um, one of Noah's first words after Dada um, was actually kaka, which is the Noongar word for kookaburra. And Noah learning um, in this place 
um, the names of the ancient names of um, uh, the, the birds where we are. Um, it brings to mind like Wendell Berry talking about um, if we're to pr protect, protect the world's multitude of places and creatures, then we must know them um, with affection by heart so that in seeing and remembering them by heart, um, we can be said to sing, to make a music particular to recognition of each particular place or creature that is known well. And I think this is the work of recovering embodiment. Um, uh, like, and what that I think looks practically is churches should be involved in resourcing Extinction Rebellion wherever they are um, in any number of ways. And maybe we can get to the practicalities of some of that, like direct action, arrestable. But one of the things that impresses me that Byron um, was drawing on that speaks to the heart of um, uh, Uncle Ray's prophetic witness is to, to name there is no hope in what we're currently doing. And we actually need to, to join voices and um, put our worship um, uh, towards deepening democracy in the places that we are, that lift up every voice as a way of loving our neighbours. Thank you so much, Jared. And I think the the thing that comes to mind from hearing you talk about, you know, this retrieval of right relationship with the created order, you know, he hearing Byron and Ray and, and you, Jared, talk about what what the effects of extractive capitalism have have brought on on our on our relationship to what it is to be embodied and embedded in a particular place. Um, obviously something has gone very wrong with the way that we think about our relationship to and connection with the land. And so Uncle Ray, given given that First Nations peoples, as you said earlier, have been custodians of the land in a healthy way for tens of thousands of years, I I wondered if if you could share some of the wisdom that um, you know the, the peoples that that you're a part of can 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 bring to bear on on retrieving some of this right relationship um, in how we understand our connection to land. Look, I don't think we can. There's, there was two voices that were speaking to me over there in, in Scotland. One is, if I want to read another about uh, what, when, what mankind is saying about uh, climate change, and I can you know, turn on the new, news TV, read another news article, uh, another academic paper, I can get mankind's view. But one of the things I wanted to know is, you know, what is God saying in all of this? What's his voice? Are we listening to that? And it's interesting how the Lord shifted my attention to uh, the ancient of days, uh, to the book of Daniel there. And that Belshazzar's feast was very interesting to interesting for me per personally, theologically, because here they were using sacred elements to feast with. And that was the reasons for their punishment. And when I see make that comparison to our situation today, I can see that the, you know, we're ripping up God's sacred land. We're just destroying it. We're treating it as of nothing. And so the handwriting on the wall became very real to me. You know, meanie, meanie, tickle, fasten. Your days are numbered. You've been waiting the balances. There's going to be some big changes happening. Now, that was God speaking to me. I've been reflecting on that for quite some time now and just saying, well, where is the church in all this? And because the church to me is, is the, uh, it's supposed to be the biggest voice on, on these things because of our connection to God's word. But I think we're so far away from God's word that it's, it's not, you know, it's just of naught anymore. And uh, the only image that I got from the, from trying to understand from a biblical viewpoint was, uh, you know, the story of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. He had to go out and, you know, marry a prostitute. And that, that uh, image of a prostitute is, is quite is quite challenging for uh, when we think of the church as the bride of Christ. I mean, is Jesus coming back for a prostitute? And when the prostitute had those children, it's interesting that God said, you name them these. One, 
Jezreel because there was a massacre in the valley of Jezreel. Two, the girl's name would be called No Mercy and the boy's name would be called Nobody. <laughs> and I'm trying to understand what God is saying to us, not what I'm trying to understand this. So the Hosea story is very powerful in the ways in which we look at this relationship between uh, God and his church. Um, I think the church really needs to have another really serious reformation somehow. Um, maybe, maybe more of a revolution than a re reformation. Uh, I think it needs one of those thing, times when Jesus says, you see these uh, bricks and mortar, I'm going to rip them all down and start again. And perhaps that we as uh, followers of Jesus should examine the Gospels from, from Paul's time, between Paul's time and, uh, and Constantine, because that was, the church was very indigenous at that time. It didn't have one, it, it wasn't based on nationalism. And uh, we've lost that. It's, it's completely gone. Uh, we, we don't know who the heck we are as a church. Um, and so we come up with all these titles and names and put our brand names on it. So, and the other, uh, other thought that came very powerful to me too was this notion of, uh, of Babylon. And I think Australia to me is, is the new Babylon for me, for Indigenous peoples. And so uh, they're the images that I come away with. <laughs> and I've got to struggle with that. Uh, I've got to deal with that in my own spirit and saying, well, how long, Lord, how long? Uh, in my own spirit. And I'm not trying to be a prophet or anything of that nature. I, I think I'm, if, if, if that's the case, I'd, I'd, I'd leave the church immediately. Uh, I'm just someone who's trying to understand um, what God is saying to us. What is he trying to say to me? And do I have a right to speak out about these things, Lord? Because I don't feel like I have. Uh, because I don't think anyone's hearing. I'm more the uh, John the Baptist, you know, the voice in the wilderness rather than the voice from the pulpit. And as I was saying to some of uh, some other uh, leading theologians, uh, you know, I, I've had to put, place my pulpit in the middle of the uh, of my people's pain, you know, the stolen generation and these kind of people. That's where my pulpit is. But recently, I've had to move my pulpit from there to the to the graveside because that's where our people are. Yeah, they're in the graveside. I mean, we're dealing with sorry business right in here in my own home. And uh, every week, we're, we're off to another funeral. Where is the church on all that? I have no idea. The only thing I can say to my people when we're going through all this sorry business all the time is that the only place where Jesus wept was at a funeral service. And so here is a God weeping with us while this other big plutocracy continues to destroy us. If there was a revolution, we would possibly have to rethink not, not just democracy, not just only capitalism, but also communism and all the other isms that we have devised ourselves and rethink what it means to live in God's kingdom. What is God's principles? What does his kingdom look like? Rather than what does his church look like? But what is his kingdom? And uh, I think we've lost a sense of that, since the loss of his kingdom. Thank you so much for that uh, powerful and uh, prophetic word, Pastor Ray. I, I, I really appreciate that image of the sacred vessels uh, being being abused. I think that is a, a powerful description of what we're talking about. And you know, as you're talking about rethinking capitalism and these different isms uh, and their pernicious uh, impacts on on climate, I, I, I'm curious um, for for everyone here how you think about the movement from these sort of theological impulses towards political action that, that move towards political engagement. I, I don't think it's, it's uh, we, we've never been disengaged from politics because we're human. We are political. 
there was a lady back in the 1920s who, who really influenced my thinking about this in terms of democracy and that. And her name was uh, Mary Parker Follett. And she wrote a book called The New State. Uh, she, her, lots of her thought, thoughts was taken up by um, leadership gurus around the planet because she spoke about group theories and introduced those kind of concepts of democracy from that perspective and all that local level stuff. But she said, back in the 20s, she says, you know, the two-party preferred system of government is dead. And the problem is we haven't had a funeral service for the two-system system of government. We're still locked into that. And we're still locked into this whole notion of, here in Australia anyways, uh, we, we still, we're still locked into this whole notion of constitutional monarchy. And we can't... We can't seem to cut the umbilical cords from that. So when you're talking politics, you're talking something much more bigger than just my political involvement. But to me, it's more about how do we, how do we, we the people, get our get our power back? <laughs> if we're going to talk about democracy, how do we the people regain our voice and our and our power power base back again? And it might mean that kind of revolutionary process of saying we, we need a new constitution in this country. We need to kick out the Queen. And, you know, how can, for me personally, as an Aboriginal person, I can say this to you guys, how can a dysfunctional foreign family control my land? It's just unthinkable. Whether that's the, uh, the Windsors um, or the Murdochs, <laughs> that's, yep, right, that's right, pirate. <laughs> or the Modis, or the Bezoses. Yeah, that's right. yeah. There's there's a few dysfunctional families. Yeah, so, but it is crown land, and that's 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 why I say the crown. It, it is crown land, and if you read the constitution, there, the, she's the head of it, and as well as her siblings and her what do you call those things in in terms of the genealogy. It, it, it's just passed on from generation to generation in perpetuity. Mm. We've got to stop that. It's not her, her country. She doesn't live here. She doesn't know its secrets, nor its, nor its strengths or its powers or its sacredness. And so that's what I'm saying. We've got to get rid of the, this dysfunctional family from controlling us. But how do you say that to a bunch of convicts? I don't know. Who seem to like her. Yeah, no, like I agree with that step. I guess I'm just questioning. Um, so the Queen delegates her authority to a parliament. That's the theory. Mm. In practice, that parliament then sells itself out to the multinational companies. And mm. so having a parliament that's not answerable to the Queen in a republic, uh, but which has still sold itself out to the multinational companies, hasn't uh, yet really... Uh, it's addressed one aspect of the problem, but um, uh, uh, you know, d democracy is more than um, moving beyond uh, monarchy, I guess. I think that this is, for me, uh, the, the, my first introduction to both you, Jared, and you, Byron, was in the context of um, the impulse, as, as John said before, of moving from theological reflection to practical action in, in the context of nonviolent direct action. And so I just would love for you to share um, why, why and how you both got involved in those movements? Um, my, my short testimony is would probably be because Jesus first loved me. Um, uh, I think one of the things that Uncle Ray does so well, because um, he, he is a, a poet and musician, uh, not just a fantastic preacher and theologian, is that he invites us into the Psalms. Um, Brugman puts the prophetic task of the church um, is to tell the truth in a society that lives on an illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial and express hope in a society that lives in despair. And um, that expression of hope, I really want to, um, uh, for, for listeners to be able to go, we're not talking about optimism. We actually need to face how horrific things are. Um, hope is what we do with our bodies. Hope is where we put our bodies. And um, what it is to um, uh, believe in the bodily resurrection um, 
the transfiguration of all things, as um, uh, von Balthasar um, would call it, or um, uh, um, M. Sean Co Copeland um, talks about the, the resurrection as the transfigure of creation um, that has started, is to place our, our bodies out of this process of um, docs, of worship where we actually um, name the grief, tell the truth, and our response is not pointing fig fingers but removing logs and becoming a people where we're able to um, uh, confess our complicity in that which still steals, kills, and destroys, um, then we can be present in such ways where um, our confession happens in public um, and uh, our, our good deeds can still happen in secret. Um, the, the church must confess its complicity with everything Jesus has come um, to destroy, <laughs> which is that which destroys um, God's good earth. Um, and so my, my journey with that um, uh, was a process of realizing the centrality of um, the crosses, um, not merely for our understanding um, of soteriology, um, but our understanding of discipleship. And the cross isn't a passive um, acquiescence to all that is wrong, but God's confrontational um, uh, unveiling of this evil, while at the same time revealing a love that is stronger still. And so um, what it is for us to take up our cross in an ecological crisis uh, is to actually be found on the front lines in whatever way is appropriate for us. Some of us are from um, uh, racial backgrounds or gender backgrounds or economic backgrounds or any number of other intersections that mean time in prison or uh, being locked up and taken away is um, life-threatening, literally. Um, uh, but all of us can participate in ways, um, there are many parts um, for the body uh, that actually tell the truth about what's happening. I, I really hope, um, maybe it's too early for the altar call in the podcast, but um, if I was giving it, it, it's come forward and like actually follow Jesus into a confrontational lament that tells the truth of what's happening and embodies hope um, by telling the truth, not with some optimism that we're going to get out of this. I'm not sure that we can. I think that's some of the stuff that we're called to die to. Uh, but our hope is that um, what seems impossible uh, might come to pass if we act in ways that are faithful and we leave the rest to God. Um, so I, I mean, people can look elsewhere for what that's looked like for me in my adult life. My first arrestable action was uh, Pine Gap in 2002, October, and um, th there's been a, a lot of good troublemaking, as John Lewis would call it, um, since then. And I've had the incredible privilege of learning at the feet of um, Uncle Vincent, who uh, others uh, called Dr. Vincent Harding and Reverend James Lawson, both of whom were co-workers, and I've got to run workshops with them and train people in nonviolent direct action as a way of you know, um, making a living as well. But that that would be my encouragement to people is that this has got to move from the theoretical to embodiment um, to through the real grief um, to the energy that means that we can take part in in a, a living alternative to what's happening that confronts what's happening. Yeah, so good. Uh, and if, if I just again say amen to uh, all that uh, theology from Jared. Uh, and then to, to answer my own journey, I'd, I'd throw in some of the, the points that uh, Uncle Ray made just moments ago about um, how important it is to uh, not just be an individual, um, that uh, one of those stories that we have lived by, but which is killing us, is the idea that um, our most important identity is who we are as an individual. Um, we're taught to be, you know, isolated uh, uh, consumers um, bringing about change by slightly shifting the way that we spend our dollars, uh, though that's just to play once more into plutocracy, because if we're voting with our dollars, then it's one vote per dollar, and Jeff Bezos gets billions of votes, and, and you know, I've got a handful in my pocket. Um, uh, so uh, Bill McKibben, um, the uh, Sunday school teacher and uh, climate activist, has a great reply when people ask him, uh, what can I possibly do as an individual? He says, stop being an individual. 
uh, so partly I had been um, an individual. I'd been uh, sitting in my uh, at my desk uh, doing my PhD for years, getting more and more depressed as I uh, was writing about how people get depressed when they think about climate change. Um, uh, and I realized that partly for my own health, uh, as well as to just have the integrity of putting into practice what I was uh, talking about, uh, I needed to um, join with others uh, in putting into practice, as Jared was saying, um, alternate stories, stories that subvert those dominant stories that have been killing us. Um, and uh, uh, as Uncle Ray said, everything that we do is already political. Everything that we do, even, even trying to withdraw from public life is itself a political act. That's different from being partisan, but uh, all that we do uh, has an effect on the um, distribution and application of power in society. Uh, and so for me, it was thinking about where can I um, make a difference with others in trying to shift the stories that we live by, and whether that's placing my body in the way of machines that were knocking down a forest and building a coal mine, um, uh, or whether that's um, educating children to have a different picture of the world based on cooperation and belonging, not competition um, and isolation. Uh, or whether that's building out solar panels um, to replace um, the, the, the dirty energy. Uh, there, there are so many ways that we can all contribute to this. Um, the, the, the dauntingness of the task is that so much has to change. The freedom that we gain from that is that there are so many jobs for you to do. There is a you-shaped contribution to be made that uh, takes sense of your uh, backgrounds, your gifts, your passions, your skills, your opportunities, your qualifications, uh, where you can serve God and neighbour um, in being part of changing the stories that we live by in ways large and small. And so join with others and look for those opportunities. Thanks so much, Byron. That's such a great word. And I know that you you do live that out and you've encouraged others to do the same. And something that um, strikes me as you've talked about um, shifting our conception of our identity from just atomized individuals into communities is that that's what discipleship is. And Jared, something you've helped me in understanding in, in my walk with the Lord has been discipleship in community. And that's something that I know that you and Drew do in, in your inverse community. And I just wanted to hear from you um, how how you understand that community. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Um, I mean, uh, Dr. Drew Hart um, is producing some of the most helpful uh, material on confronting white supremacy in churches at the moment. Um, uh, and it's a it's an honour that with my mate, we get to do what started out as a, a podcast um, and has become an international community. It's, it's remarkable in a um, short amount of time that um, we've become in the top 1% of listened to podcasts in the world, which we found out this last um, week, which is crazy. Um, and it's a resource for, for people who are seeking um, to embody something better. And uh, yes, it's the work of recovering faith from um, often uh, toxic and individualized um, support and collusion with um, uh, white supremacist forms of um, religious chaplaincy, uh, but it's uh, much more a community of discipleship. And we've Steph, had this incredible opportunity recently that um, Eastern Mennonite University, that many will know because of its um, uh, world-respected um, uh, courses on conflict transformation, they've approached us and asked if um, we, as a podcast, would be willing to do a conference with them. So um, in January this year, there's a gathering of our listeners um, in Europe that's happening um, on uh, the English border that separates across Ireland. Uh, so that'll be in Ross Trevor um, and uh, at Virginia, uh, in Virginia at the um, Eastern Mennonite University campus and then online as well. And it's on the themes of race, place and climate catastrophe. And um, we're so pleased that um, our contributors um, are all inverse um, community participants. So we've got um, Dr. Mick Pope, who's a meteorologist and um, uh, a, a theologian who will be sharing um, about um, climate change and um, his theological work. Um, uh, Uncle Ray will be pleased that our, our own um, sister, Naomi Wolf, who's the um, uh, 
student dean for um, NAITS um, in Australia, um, is one of the presenters, um, uh, Carol Unger, who runs um, Masingi Trust in Kenya, Nairobi. Um, so it's this phenomenal gathering of people who are seeking um, to go, what, what does embodying discipleship together mean in situations where gathering together during a pandemic is, is quite difficult? How do we move from ideas and information to um, shared transformation that changes the, the rhythms and patterns of our life? So um, th thanks for allowing a plug. If, if that's of interest um, to your listeners, um, we'd love to have you in the mix. Thanks so much, Byron, Jared and Ray for joining us. Um, I have really benefited from all the wisdom that you've had to share and the experience that you have brought to bear in, in this conversation. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Uh, there's always so much more to say, um, but I hope this conversation can be uh, uh, a stepping stone for others as it has been uh, for us. Steph and John, thanks for doing what you're doing and like, you know, including little old me in the mix. Uh, it, it's my prayer that it will be helpful for um, the church actually being the church. Thanks for having us and I pray your journey in uh, helping our world heal will continue to bear fruit. Thank you.